Okay, wonderful. Why don't we pray so we can get started, okay? Pray together. Father, thank you so much for this glorious Lord's Day. Thank you that we can come into your presence now, Lord, to open up your word, to seat, sit beneath the power of your presence here, Lord, and Lord, just to experience once again what it means to be the body of Christ, to come together in the bond and in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless our time as a congregation, Lord, that we would live out the gospel among ourselves, that we would do what Scripture calls us to do and be what Scripture calls us to be, all for your glory, all for your namesake. We ask your help now. Give us clarity of mind, clarity of thought, Lord. Help us to really press into the things of God here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, if you have your Bibles, you'll be turning in your Bibles in a moment to Ephesians chapter 4. But just to remind us a little bit, of what we were, uh, what we were looking at previously in our study of practical saint, uh, practical ecclesiology here, we we ended on the topic of uh, membership and who should join the church and what church membership looks like. And just to recap where we've been, remember that uh, the person that should join a church is anybody who is seeking to be obedient to the commands of Scripture. Uh, these are just some of the arguments that I gave to understand. Why or how do we orient our lives around the doctrine of the church? Uh, Who should be a member of a church? Well, anybody that's really seeking to obey the Word of God. Uh, You cannot be obedient to Scripture in many, many different ways if you are not actively pursuing church membership. Uh, That is because, as we established last week, the Christian life is really oriented in an ecclesiastical fashion. Church membership is not optional for the Christian. Uh, The only thing that's optional is, well, what church are you going to join and when are you going to join it and those kinds of things. But once you determine that, you understand that uh, the whole doctrine of church membership uh, sort of precludes the idea that that membership is optional. Every Christian that seeks to be faithful to serving Christ is also a candidate for church membership because remember what church is. Church is the body of Christ operating under the authority of Christ under the authority of Christ. And so if we are going to be faithful to the master, if we're going to be faithfully operating under Jesus' authority, that is always going to be worked out in the context of the local church and in the membership of the church. Also, whoever is faithfully seeking to honor the church, that is to say to have the same perspective that God has of the church, that really is crucial uh, for having a proper ecclesiology. Do I have the same view of the church that God does. And what we argued is you can't if you're not taking the church serious enough that you're willing to commit to the church, to join the church, and to formally identify yourself with a church body. It simply cannot be done. Also, every Christian seeking to be faithful and persevere in faith to the end. Why do I mention that? Well, just take one example, for example, uh, for uh, Scripture, for example, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 25, which I think most of you guys know, maybe not by memory, but if I start quoting it, you'll probably remember what it says, right? It says, you know, uh, you know do not forsake to, to, to assemble yourselves together as is the manner of some, right? And then we kind of know that one because that's the one that says, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together. Most of us can quote that, but what does verse 26 say? Not that I have it memorized, but I'm just asking you. What does verse 26 say? Most people don't know. Immediately after that verse on assembling together, which is the the word there is synagogue, which is the word for synagogue or assembly, right? Immediately after that verse, as a warning, if you don't take heed to that verse, immediately in verse 26, the author of Hebrews begins to speak about apostasy, about drifting away. And so think about that. The context of, of being in the assembly goes right together with the consequence of drifting away and drifting into apostasy. And so that, that needs to be firmly understood and grasped and heeded. And so uh, we want to bring up a, another question now, and that's this. What is required a church membership? What is required in church membership? I don't want to run you through everything we run people through in the membership meetings. So like if you join a church, fill out the membership form, and then you, uh, you, know, you, you, you get a, elder, uh, a meeting with the elders, and we meet with you, or 
you know, Pastor Lynn and Brian start meeting with you, and there, there's stuff that we walk you through there, but I just want to hit up some of the main things here to keep in mind as we study what church membership is. Uh, notice the first item on the list there, regenerate church membership. Do you know how many churches do not pursue regenerate church membership? A lot of them. In other words, as long as you're willing to pray a prayer, sign a card, walk an aisle, fill out a form, you can be a member of a church. I mean, that's typically the way a lot of churches operate, uh, especially if you're talented, of course. Uh, you, can, you can begin immediately serving up on stage if you have talent, you see. And so that's the mentality of most churches. It kind of, I mean, maybe in our context here, it kind of goes without saying that you can't be a member if you're not regenerate, uh, but that is not that is not typical in church membership membership situations. A lot of church members are members of a church, whether they're saved or not saved. As long as you're committed, as long as you attend, as long as you tithe, uh, you can be a member of a church. It's just stunning to me how many churches operate in this way. And so, um, but there's sort of a balance with that, right? Because how do we know if you are genuinely regenerate? Well, we. We don't, not infallibly. We do not know if you genuinely are regenerate, but it's the elder's, I think, duty to try to discern as much as possible based on your testimony whether or not you have experienced regeneration. And this is an issue that is um, very important for many reasons. Number one, if we're going to have a pure church, a true church and a pure church, it has to begin with regeneration. In other words, we have to, as much as possible, try to discern that the people coming into our church are actually saved. And, 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 and that's, uh, again, that's, that's an issue of discernment. There are limitations to that, but we have to strive to, to keep a regenerate church membership role, if you would. And so we have to, we have to listen to your testimony. So that's kind of like the next thing, right? You have to have a valid testimony. Uh, several times we've actually, and I've actually been in church membership meetings where we have to tell the person seeking church membership, uh, we're sorry, we love you, but we don't believe you're regenerate. We don't, based on your testimony and based on the things that you're telling us regarding how you supposedly got saved or how you became a Christian, you are not a candidate for church membership. I've had to do that on numerous occasions, um, and uh, I tell you, I have, a mixed fe- I have mixed feelings about that because I don't want to ex- upset people, right? So uh, you care for people, uh, but you know that there's a higher priority. And the higher priority is to, def- is to you know, protect the purity of the church, but also protect the members of the church. And so that's another blessing of being part of a, of a, of a member of a church is if the elders are doing their job, You'll know that the people coming and joining our church, uh, in a sense, I guess you can say, have been properly vetted and that we've met with these people and we've tried to discern the spiritual condition of these people. In other words, we're not just going to let anybody in here, right, to be a member of a church, which in the minds of the market-driven church today is just insanity. Uh, You know what that sounds like? That sounds like close the front doors and open the back doors. Oh, ironically, that's exactly what Mark Dever says to do. <laughs> Mark Dever, in his Nine Marks of a Christian Church, which is a good book, uh, he says, you know, that's, the, you know that's, that's really the mentality of the New Testament. It's not what you see today in popular evangelical culture. You know, open the front door, close the back door. In other words, don't let anybody out. You know, don't lose any people for any reason and get as many people as you can. Uh, that kind of pragmatism has led to the, to the type of... Uh, you know, chaos that we see in evangelicalism today where, uh, you know, uh, false conversions are just everywhere and the, 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 the purity of the church is at an all-time low in many, many corners of the world. And so, no, we, we, we should have that, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek here, but close the front door and open the back door. In other words, make it easy to leave if you're really not of us. First John chapter 2, verse 19. And make it hard to come in if you're really of us. In other words, use discernment. Um, hear the person's testimony. Try to discern, is there true regeneration here? Is there true authentic salvation here? Or did this person have a religious experience of some kind? Or are they trying to ride on the coattails of their husband or their wife? Uh, that's happened many, many times. Uh, some of the testimonies that I've heard, that I've been a part of in meetings, that the elders 
ultimately came to the conclusion, no, we can't give this person church membership. One of them was, well, um, I grew up in a very religious home. Uh, my mom or my dad was very religious, and that's the testimony. Nothing about personal repentance, personal faith, personal conversion, right? Another one had a young lady once tell me, uh, yeah, it was just a good idea to start going to church because we wanted to make sure our kids grew up in, a right, in the right you know, environment. That's not a testimony. That's not enough for us to say you've been genuinely born again. And when we came back to the issue of their repentance and their repentance, there just was, there wasn't a, a, a ability to articulate repentance and faith. And so, uh, boy, I tell you what, I praise God. Our church is full of, of, of testimonies that are reflective of genuine conversion, genuine salvation. And I tell you what, it's it's a hard job in one sense because salvation is a mystery. Salvation is of the Lord. Uh, they, they don't all sound the same. Uh, probably the most powerful testimony I ever heard by one of the godliest women I ever met. She said she was seven years old. She was doodling around a tree just playing out in the front yard. And she said she stopped. And she said right there and then she understood the gospel for the first time. And she became broken over her sin, believed in Jesus. And that's it. That's her testimony. That's it. And ever since then, she's had, a, she ha, she's had a genuine walk, genuine, I mean, you would think, right? Like, what? Just, uh, that's it, you know? Where's the, uh, you know, where's the typical Romans road type of thing, right? <laughs> well, Jesus is the one that said in Romans, or uh, John chapter 3, verse 8, that, you know, regeneration is like the wind. It kind of, you see the effects of it, but you don't know where the wind's coming from or where it's going. In other words, God is absolutely sovereign over the issue of regeneration. But we want to hear, so what is a valid testimony that grants a person uh, uh, a church membership? Well, first of all, you've got to have a valid testimony regardless of church membership, right? If you're going to be calling yourself a Christian. But again, we want to hear an a, a awareness of sin, a repentance of sin, and we want to hear faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So in other words, there must be an awareness of your sin, there must be a repentance of that sin, and there must be faith exclusively in Jesus Christ, his person and his work. People won't use that terminology all the time. Some people don't have all the theological jargon down, but that's what we want to hear. We want to hear that people put their faith exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, that they're not trusting in anything else, their experience, uh, their church, their pastor, their husband, their wife, their family, nothing. Uh, they're, they're trusting solely on the work of Jesus Christ. And, um, and sometimes we've had to work with people to try to explain to them and highlight to them uh, that this is what a true uh, testimony is all about, is is your faith properly fixed upon the, the object of salvation, which is Christ and what he did on the cross. And so those are uh, absolutely uh, imperative for us to try to discern when we think about church membership. Uh, anybody have any questions about that, just in terms of regenerate church membership, um, how that's discerned, um, and anything like that whatsoever, because a lot to get to today, but I, I'd certainly, that's a big point, you know. Anybody have any questions about that, please? Even if you're thinking about it and you're saying, oh, I don't really want to ask, because, you know, uh, you know, ask because then afterwards people will always tell me i was going to ask about regeneration you know when the pastor was begging us to ask and then they didn't ask you know so okay i'll i'll, I'll trust that there are no actual questions regarding that but th if there is uh you can ask at any time what about this what's required to join a church well you can't be under church discipline at least not in our church if you're under church discipline at another church, we will not give you church membership. We will tell you to turn around, go to the church you came from, and go and finish business there. And, um, and I've actually participated in that. Matter of fact, just recently, <laughs> recently I had a phone call from an elder from a church that said, hey, uh, this gentleman has come to us seeking uh, repentance, uh, seeking a membership, excuse me, but they said that you and uh, other elder of a different church put them under church discipline. Is that right? I said, yes, that's absolutely right. The problem is, is I'm no longer at Sovereign Joy, and so I, my business there is over. And it's, I, my jurisdiction, I felt like, is, is, is not there anymore. So I would say, please consult 
uh, the elders of that church uh, to try to figure out what, what the deal is. But you see that, and I, th- I actually thanked the pastor. I was like, man, God bless you for doing your due diligence and reaching out to me. And uh, that shows me there's other like-minded churches in the area that care about the purity of their church, you see. And so, uh, and I've had that. And I recently had another church reach out to me, same exact thing. Hey, this person was under discipline of your church here at Heritage Grace, and now they're seeking membership at our church. Um, what's it going to take to walk them through reconciliation? Well, I laid it all out. I told them this is what needs to happen. The person was unwilling to do that. Uh, any questions about that? Because that's really big. That shows you the authority of Christ uh, in the church. Yes, sir. Mm. Well, that's good. Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, certainly. I would say that if, if a person has a case, right, that they've been put under church discipline erroneously by a church, uh, then what may need to happen is that those two churches may need to come together and actually invite another elder or another pastor from a different church to come and to arbitrate between them. Uh, I've seen that on numerous occasions where three churches need to get involved in order to try to resolve an issue. So there's definitely ways to handle that. Yeah. Anybody else? Questions? Anybody else? No? Okay, so um, again, in joining a church, uh, another prerequisite would be theological unity. This is obviously a huge one, and so we tell people, be sure, read the doctrinal statement of our church, make sure that you are theologically on board with where we're at. Now, that doesn't mean you have to subscribe to every jot and tittle of a church's doctrinal statement or a church's confession, but you certainly should have at least a general uh, sort of system subscription to their to to where they're at, Uh, and then you have to determine areas that you disagree, and then you have to determine whether or not those areas of disagreement rise to the level of something detrimental, essential uh, for you. Uh, If you find something to be uh, absolutely essential for your walk and for your theology, and you cannot endure uh, being in a church uh, that teaches something opposite to what you believe, you need to determine what those are, what those convictions are, so that you're not coming to church and having your conscience violated. For example, much as I love my Presbyterian theologians and brethren, I love them to death, I personally cannot in my conscience uh, be a member of a Presbyterian church. I can't personally endure infant baptism. So much as I love R.C., as much as I love Lee Duncan, as much as I love these men and many, many others, right, um, I've actually excused myself from an infant baptism ceremony. I, I will not partake at all. Uh, and some of you, that's kind of harsh. Well, to each man his conscience, I suppose. But I, I just can't be a part of that. I, don't, I think that's, a, I think that's a, what did Mark Dever tell Lig Duncan? I'll hide behind Mark Dever. Mark Dever told Lig Duncan that the difference of baptism between us is a sin issue. <laughs> he thinks it's a sinful error to baptize an infant, and I agree. I have to. I'm bound by Scripture, so uh, I don't think it's a test of fellowship in the sense of I can no longer recognize you as a brother or something like that, but certainly when it comes to the purity of the church, I think that is a less pure sacramental and ecclesiology. So uh, any questions about that? That's a big one. I threw out a big one. It's just like, bam, you know, the whole congregation. Yes, ma'am. See, Abby's like ready to launch. (laughs) Uh, we would require baptism. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right. I told Cy Tim Bruggenkate when he was here, I said, you know, you, you can join Heritage Grace if you let me baptize you. Right? Anybody else? You know, maybe, maybe in certain situations, are there any exceptions to any of that? I've ministered in a persecuted church context. Uh, when I was in Uganda, Africa, and the Christians were fleeing persecution from the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda, in Uganda Africa, uh, those churches were forced to congregate together and stick together. So in a small little uh, congregation, there were Anglicans, Pentecostals, Baptists, Assemblies of God, and they were all congregating together. 
It was the wildest thing I've ever seen. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to be here for this. Like, <laughs> you, know, you got all these, you know, Anglican had his collar on and everything. I was just like, wow, this is wild. But maybe persecution could force us to have to lay aside some of those secondary, tertiary issues for the sake of survival. I don't know. Any other questions regarding any of that? Oh. Yeah, so theological unity, so huge. If you're there, Ephesians chapter 4, I did want to take us to Scripture. Um, this is very important. Theological unity is absolute, absolutely key, but so is unity overall. Uh, why would you want to join a church that you don't feel united to? Uh, I would say don't. Um, the last thing I want to do is pull someone's teeth, right? Like, if you don't want to be here, please don't, right? It's like, the, you know, for, there was a time there where, I don't know why, but the Lord was bringing me a lot of people who were struggling with leaving their church. And so I just, I got hit up at a conference and then people were emailing me, calling me. It just seems like there was a season where I was giving a lot of people counsel on, on people that were struggling with, I'm thinking about leaving my church for X, Y, and Z. What's your counsel, right? And my counsel is pretty simple, actually. If you leave the church Sunday after Sunday more bitter than blessed, you got to go. Because that's not God's will for you. God's will is not for you to get in the car and, oh, I hate this church. You, know, you, you need to go. Like, you need to go find the church where you can, you know, give your heart to the church. Because that is not the experience that God has ordained for his children. He wants his children to leave the church blessed, filled, full. Can I use the word happy? <laughs> filled with joy. You, you see what I'm saying? Feeling like you've had a meaningful, ecclesiastical family experience. If you're not experiencing that, please go to another church. Go somewhere where you can glad, gratefully and gladly, joyfully submit to the elders, uh, engage in one another ministry, serve the body. If you're not doing that, you really should pray about that. Any questions about that? Because I know that's a big statement, but, but you guys get what I'm saying? Like, I don't think, like when I became Reformed, and I was, uh, as a young man, but newly married, Newly Calvin, Calvinistic, uh, newly just got married, just became, just just invited Calvin into my heart, you know. Just, <laughs> I just, you know, I just, uh, you know, I just got married to Trish. Oh, and I'll tell you this, but Trish, I think the camera. Oh, this is dangerous. I remember Trish crying, literally crying, and telling me, "You're not going to become one of those Calvinists and take me away from church, are you?" And I'm like, "Well, you know, we'll see what the Lord does." When in my heart, I was like, well, probably. <laughs> because I just, you know, yeah. Yeah, Brian. Excellent. Mm. Yeah. Correct. That's the danger of summing up the council so quickly, you know. But yes, working through that, making sure you've done all the one another's, making sure, you know, you fulfilled your part. You know, church membership is a two-way street, right? The church has to minister to you, and you need to minister to the church, right? If it's only a one-way deal, you're going to have problems, you know what I mean? It's guaranteed, you see. So, uh, yeah, any other questions, comments, anything? Okay, let's read this passage of Scripture real quick, okay? Um, <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, <clears throat> showing tolerance for one another in love. I should point out, brothers and sisters, that in verse 1 where Paul says, I implore you, the you is in the plural. Can't really see that in the English. It's in the plural. It's a plural pronoun. So when he says, I implore you, you translate it something like, I implore you all. So he's addressing the whole church, okay? And then he says, that's why he, that's why he says, 
for uh, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Therefore, excuse me, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So then he goes into talking about the individual gifts that God has given the body, exhibit A, pastors and teachers for the edification of the church, etc. Right? And so here, the Apostle Paul is making very clear, how do we maintain the unity of the body? Well, he highlights all of these things, and it all has to do with one another ministry in showing humility and gentleness and patience. Uh, it really is, brothers and sisters, church membership and just being part of a church is all about bestowing these virtues on one another, blessing each other with these spiritual virtues, and uh, lavishing one another with these glorious virtues that God has given us through His Spirit, gentleness, hum uh, humility, patience. These are all fruits of the Spirit, right, or the fruit of the Spirit at work in our lives, and then we are supposed to communicate that to one another uh, as we show tolerance for one another in love. I like that word, show tolerance for one another. It's just literally, you know, bend over backwards for each other. Be patient with one another in so many different ways, in your walk, in your, in your you know, in your habits, in your idiosyncrasies, in your growth, you see. What does Jude say? You know, be patient with those that doubt. Not everybody is as gung-ho as you are, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Not everybody's on the same page. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a whole, uh, a, a whole amalgamation of convictions in any church. You know, there's people that say, well, you got to homeschool. There's parents that say, well, I'm not there yet. I'm not ready to homeschool. I mean, some parents are ready to say, well, you're in sin if you don't homeschool, you know, uh, et cetera. I mean, that's just one, you know. Uh, one person's like ready, one person's ready to, crack open a beer and perfectly fine at home drinking to the glory of God. Another person's like, if you crack open a beer, I'll cry. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's all, one person's ready to go watch, you know, the latest action figure or whatever movie. The other person is like, for me to step foot in a theater is sin. You see what I'm saying? And so on and on and on. I mean, our convictions go, and in the midst of all of those things, so long it is not a clearly sinful issue, we must tolerate one another. We must. You know, I've been at dinner recently with brothers that, no problem, you know, ordering a beer, ordering a glass of wine, all of that. And I actually used to be there. I used to have no problem with alcohol. Uh, and then somewhere early on, I kind of just gave it up because I found it to be just kind of a hindrance and a weight for me personally. And so I just thought, you know, it's not really useful for me anymore. It's certainly not useful for ministry. Some pastors I meet, I mean, that's almost like the highlight of the ministry. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I'm trying to wrap my brain around that. <laughs> but I'll show tolerance towards that, right? And so we have to be careful, even in the midst of pursuing unity, that we don't mistake unity, meaning everybody has the same monolithic convictions across the board. We do not. I think that's part of what it means to be tolerant of one another. I'm not talking about sin, so let's put that off the table, right? I'm not talking about drunkenness, okay? That's off the table, right? I'm not talking about salacious content in your entertainment. That's off the table, Okay, I'm talking about things that are within the bounds of Scripture, and, uh, but maybe outside of the bounds for your personal conviction. Any questions about that? Because that's a, that's a big one. But let's just get real. I wanted to do this practical ecclesiology series because I wanted to get into the nitty-gritty of stuff that systematic theology just doesn't talk about, which is like this stuff, right? Anybody have any questions about that issue right there? Uh, in terms of pursuing unity, pursuing and tolerating one another, even in light of our convictions, you know, et cetera. Yes, sir. Hmm? 
I think I know what you're saying. I think what you're talking about is what Scripture says in Romans chapter 14 when it tells you, do not strengthen the conscience of your brother, which is they have a conscience issue about that, let's say drinking or eating meat, right, in the context there. And then you're trying to strengthen their conscience to adopt your convictions. That's wrong. You need to let that person have their convictions to the glory of God as long as their convictions do not lead them to heresy, meaning legalism. As long as their convictions is not, well, brother, I can't drink and neither can you, right? That's legalism. That's putting a box around something Scripture does not put a box around. You see what I'm saying? I mean, does the Bible say you should not drink at all, right? Of course not. I got news for you guys. Jesus drank, right? He turned water into wine. And no, John MacArthur, is this live streamed? <laughs> John MacArthur's wrong. Uh, Jesus turned water into wine, and the wine was alcoholic, okay? It wasn't non-alcoholic, like a Heineken or something. It had alcohol, sorry. Uh, but I'll give you another example. You can err on this. Uh, uh, you guys know who Daniel Wallace is? Daniel Wallace, very respected textual critic, right here in Dallas, actually. I read an article by Daniel Wallace on wine, and he said he was doing a comprehensive study on the whole issue, right? So I read, the, I read through it, and uh, it was very good. However, I think um, it missed quite a bit of Scripture because he highlighted mainly everywhere in Scripture where it talks about wine being a good thing, being, making your heart merry, you know, all the permissible passages in Scripture, and man, he just overlooked some of the most powerful cautions in Scripture regarding wine and just didn't really dive deep into those passages. And I just thought, no, that's not balanced. You know, you gotta, you got to get into those Proverbs and those passages that talk about don't look upon the wine when it sparkles and, you know, wine is a brawler. You know, you got to get into all that stuff. You know what I mean? You gotta, if you're going to do it, you better do it. So, so all I'm saying is that you got to take all that into account, okay? And uh, drinking can absolutely, uh, you know, these liberty issues can absolutely affect the unity of the church. My last church, before I get to Ricky, uh, we had a liberty group that started kind of really, really expressing their liberty at church. And they were having like drinking parties where no one's getting drunk, but they're just, everyone's bringing a glass of wine or they're bringing a, an ale or something like that. Well, guess what happened? Yep, a young lady ended up getting totally drunk and just collapsing on the floor, you know, and doing just silly things and Elders had to go in there like a wrecking ball and clean house, and it was terrible. So it can get out of hand. And so um, I'll be the first person to support your liberty, but I'll be the last person to support your debauchery, okay, and your sin. And so I will not do that. Uh, Ricky, sorry. Uh, strengthening the conscience? Oh, boy. That's like a death match right there. Where's that verse? I'm trying to figure it out right now in my mind. Uh, I think it's in uh, Romans chapter 14, isn't it? Yeah, Romans 14. Um, I don't know. You guys look it up because it will probably take me forever just to look for it. Yeah, I think it's in Romans 14. Uh, hmm. I can't, I can't find it right now, but uh, if somebody Googles it or something, maybe we can find it. See, now you got me on this thing where i got to find it now. Any other questions about that issue? Because that's a massive issue. Yes, sir. Uh, Juan. So, uh, I guess my question kind of deviates a little bit from what we're talking Yeah. Huh? So, I mean, is, 
Yeah, no, I don't agree with the King James if that's the way that it portrays it. First Timothy chapter three, uh, verse three says, "Not addicted to wine." Right. So the idea there is one of excess. Right. It's not. It's not saying that they can't drink at all. Right. Because then, what do you do with the apostles drinking wine at the last, you know, the last supper? Uh huh. Much wine, you know, and all that. Ricky knows the King James. There you go. Not giving it too much wine. Not addicted to wine. Uh, not much wine. It's very simple. We don't need a theological lesson on it. Don't be a drunkard if you're an elder. I mean, you know what I mean? Pretty simple. You're held to the same standard in one sense, right? For me personally, Juan, uh, I laid it aside for ministry because I got tired of explaining to Christians that it was my right, my liberty to drink. And so, I don't know, many, many years ago now, I mean, this was before I came to Texas. I mean, this is 2004, I think, where I just said, no, I don't need it anymore, right? And so that was, that was it. But I, I, I respect other elders who, who express their, uh, their liberty to do that. And certain denominations, they're real big on Christian liberty and drinking, okay? Uh, Presbyterian circles, I'm just, I'm just letting you guys know. Presbyterian circles, for example, have no problem incorporating alcohol into the fellowship of what they're doing, into their Bible studies, into their conferences, into their home groups, and stuff like that. They got no problem with that. Uh, from what I understand, Matt Chandler down at the village, he really pumps liberty from the pulpit. Like, he's huge on it, right? I've had members that came from his church totally stumbled by that and said that it was just a stumbling block going to a small group and people are walking in with wine coolers. It was just not, they couldn't handle it. Yes, sir? Yep. I think you have the liberty to do that, but I think uh, the fruit of the vine, right, the grape juice is, I, I think, a better way to go so that everybody qualifies for drinking the fruit of the vine without necessarily the alcohol component. And so I knew in bringing up that session, uh, that topic, it would just completely take over the whole session. So we'll have to do a whole Sunday school just on alcohol. That's a big deal, right? I mean, it's a big deal, you know, and I totally, totally understand. But if you notice back in Ephesians, you know, our whole unity is based on the objective reality of our spiritual unity as a body, the fact that we have one body, one spirit, right? You're called a one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. I mean, all of these inflexible realities are sort of the bedrock upon which our unity as a church is built, right, is on that very thing. Just a little bit of time here, but how about this? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, because as I think about unity, how are we going to do this? How is it that you and I are going to successfully engage in the unity of the body? And I thought the church and the mind of Christ is the most important thing of all. So here are some Christ-like attitudes for a Christ-like church in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Number one, I won't read the whole thing, but you can see there beginning in verse 1, encouragement in Christ. And so parakaleo, the idea of going to a church with the idea of linking up with somebody else. I mean, think about that. Think about that. Amidst all your theological growth, brothers and sisters, as much theology as you're growing in, let's say, is there practically a linking up with people in the body? If there's not, what is all that theological growth for? If not practically, right, to come alongside one another and encouragement. You see what I'm saying? Is that you can have theology and theological acumen, you can have that and be totally immature in the Lord. Let me say that again. You can have high theology and be totally immature in Christ because you don't know what, the, what to do with the person next to you. You don't know how to love them. You don't know how to encourage them. You don't know how to lay down your life for them. You don't know how to prefer them. You don't know how to have the mind of Christ toward them. And having the mind of Christ to one another 
doesn't just mean that we debate each other on theology or we teach each other covenant theology or we give each other doctrine all day long. Uh, that's part of it. But it's, I mean, when you see the attitude of Christ coming through, shining through, one of the most powerful images that we get, what is Jesus doing? Is he elaborating into the depths of covenant theology? No, he's putting on a towel and washing your feet. And so there he proves the covenant, the covenant bond that we have with one another, you see? And so encouragement in Christ. And then here's the, here's the question here. When he says, therefore, if there is any, that's a first-class conditional statement, which means he assumes it to be true that there is there is encouragement in Christ. And so, so no one in the church is off the hook, right? Because what he's saying is, the conditional statement is, search around. Is there any encouragement in Christ, you who don't want to encourage one another? Surely there's encouragement in Christ. And if there is some encouragement in Christ, then you need to go and pursue that encouragement, you see? You need to engage in that. Same, same thing with the next conditional statement. If there is any consolation of love. Is there any consolation of love? The word consolation just simply means comfort. That's according to Lao and Nita's uh, uh, Greek New Testament lexicon. Comfort. Can we comfort one another? Some of you, let me tell you, some of you in this church are so incredibly gifted at comforting one another. Right? You may not know all the theology, all the doctrine, all the terms. All the, you might be able to flow with the guys and everything they're saying. Or the girls. we politically correct. No, joking. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. You may not be there theologically, boy, but I tell you what, when you see a member suffering and there's a need, you can do stuff that people can't do. <laughs> the warmth, the compassion, the Christ-likeness, the empathy, we can learn a lot from those people in our church about what it means to be like Jesus. Uh, that's the power of it all, you know? Um, you know, you grow up with heroes in the church, right? And my heroes are always the theologians or the pastors, you know, and stuff like that. And I've gotten to meet some of these great men of God that I looked up to for many, many years, and I still love all of them very much. But I tell you what, I'm drawn to a couple guys right now that not only theologically are they so incredibly edifying, but man, when I've had personal interactions with them, what impressed me the most now is their humility, is their compassion, right? Is their willingness to just embrace me. They don't know me from Adam, and yet they're willing to just spend time with me and talk to me like I'm just, you know, like they know me, right? I mean, I've met some celebrity pastors that first encounter was like, who are you? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not naming names, but you know what I mean? Like, and then I meet other brothers that are just so incredibly Christ-like, and it's very beautiful to behold. Uh, what about fellowship? Is there any fellowship in the Spirit? If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, now be very careful there. Notice what he's saying there. How do you interpret that? Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? What does that mean? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Should I pick on someone? Landon, Brian, oh, maybe. Anyone? Ricky. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> what does it mean, fellowship of the Spirit? Because this is huge for the church, right? I would interpret that something like, is there any spiritual fellowship? Is there any spirit-filled Spirit-driven. Is there any fellowship that is born from the Spirit? Wow. You see, the reason I say that is because there's a lot of churches, their fellowship is not spiritual. Brothers and sisters, their fellowship is superficial. Their fellowship is about the Cowboys game or the weather or your job or, you know, kids, you know, stuff like that. That's great. That's all good and dandy. But, man, I... I want real fellowship where the fellowship is about the things of the Spirit, right? I, I, I love that. When we gather together for fellowship, we meet up, and yeah, we talk about our problems, and you know, we're all falling apart and all that, but, but then let's talk about the things of the Spirit. That's the real challenge, and be careful, brethren, because 
the enemy certainly does not want us fellowshipping on that level. It'd be just great if Christians get together all day long and talk about football. Who cares? That's not dangerous. But when we get together and we talk about holiness, we talk about sanctification, we talk, we talk about godly parenting and godly motherhood and godly fatherhood and things like that, that's dangerous. You see? Yes, sir. Yeah, amen. What a false dichotomy, right? That we can't talk about spiritual things amidst our mundane, I don't want to say that, but you know what I mean, like everyday things. We should. We should. That, that's how you know you're becoming like a Puritan, a doctor of the soul. Every aspect of your life interpreted spiritually, right? That is experiential theology. Uh, yes, brother? You're not taking us back to that subject, are you? <laughs> That's okay. Yes, and in verse 19, I think you read it. I just want to emphasize what you read. Speaking to one another, right? Just emphasize that one another, right? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And the word melody, I was just talking to a brother who was trying to fight me on the issue of instruments in the church today. And I said, that word melody there in the Greek literally means plucking the strings. And so maybe somebody had a guitar up in there. <laughs> but yeah, worshipful conversations. Isn't that amazing? Next one, because I want to make sure to get this with the last incredible abundant amount of time I have left. Five minutes. Affection. Affection. Because if we're honest with each other, uh, we struggle with this. A lot of us do. Uh, we're not very affectionate people. We don't typically like to show affection. Um, our culture has conditioned us in our individualistic little bubbles in which we live not to show affection to others, right, that you don't have to. And, uh, and yet here we're saying, if any affection, that is affection in Christ. And it's as simple as this, brothers and sisters. Has Jesus shown you any affection? Oh, he certainly has. He certainly has. He touches the leper, right? He condescends. He reaches down to the worst, the least, the last, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the dumb, right? And so if, there, if we have been recipients of his affection, how can we not be dispensers of his affection? right? Affection is huge. If you guys come into the church Lord's Day after Lord's Day, and if your mindset is, I'm walking through those doors in order to give encouragement, comfort, fellowship, and affection to the body, changes everything. You see what I'm saying? It changes everything. Compassion. It's, uh, they're kind of joined together because they're so, they're so inextricably linked together. Affection and compassion our capacity to empathize with one another and shower each other with empathy, compassion, sympathy. That is the opposite of looking down at each other, right? Judging one another, scrutinizing each other. I mean, that's the opposite of that. You know what I'm saying? Not that there's not a healthy place for discernment, but what I'm saying here is first and foremost, bend over to hear a person's needs and their condition and where they're at and what they need ministry-wise, right? 
If we come with that attitude and that mission into the church to think, well, let me just read it. You guys there, Philippians chapter 2? Let me just read it and it'll explain itself. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. If you don't have that, you'll come into the church kind of like, what's it got to offer me, right? You'll come into the church, see what goes on today. See, that, that, that's the opposite of the mind of Christ. Jesus would never do that among us. He would come in as a servant to serve on a mission to be the least, the last, right? The servant of all. And you know that for certain because that's what it says. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And then it says this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 6 is going to expound specifically on Christ, his servanthood. So when it says, have this, what is the this? I would say the this is pointing back, verses 1 through five, right? So it's looking back in the context, and then verse six is an exposition of that mind, but the virtues, the attitude, and the heart is looking backwards to the things we just talked about. Have this mind in you. That's what the Lord wants for us. We're out of time, and uh, I didn't even get to my next slide, but that's okay. Uh, Lord willing, next week we will continue talking about all these practical issues in ecclesiology. Let's take a few minutes. We're dismissed, and then we'll come back for worship. Thank you.